Podcast Legends, we're back with another episode. Today I sat down with Chris Cameron, the ACL physio he's called on Instagram. We've been working together. He is a great physio. I love his approach, not just incorporating some good old-fashioned strength training, but high-level plyometrics and high-level mobility training to create a well-rounded and confident athlete. So this particular episode, we go down the path of ACL injuries and in particular, non-surgical ACL rehab, which Chris is a specialist in. He obviously deals with all sorts of injuries in sports performance as, as part of his role, but he specializes in ACL rehab. So that is the path we went down today. We're going to do a few more of these podcasts and and touch on some other topics. So if you've got any questions or anything that you would like to know about this this side of training and performance, then shoot them through to me on a DM on Instagram, and I will make sure we get them included on an episode. Today on the podcast, we've got Chris Cameron, the ACL physio on Instagram. How's it going today, man? Yeah, not too bad, man. Awesome. Um, I guess first off, it'd be cool, I guess, for the listeners who haven't perhaps been following you for too long. Um, can you give us a little bit of uh, the story into your journey and how you've come to be into the sports performance side of injury rehab and physio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it started with my own personal sporting background, first and foremost. Um, I was really big into rugby union growing up um, and a bit of soccer as well um, and was just really really injury prone and I was a uh, I guess fast but pretty small and kind of brittle kid um, and would have a whole heap of injuries every rugby season and eventually got to the point where I was just getting so beat up and not recovering and not preventing injuries very effectively um, but I started kind of researching and trying to figure out what I actually needed to be doing and how I needed to be training and rehabbing my injuries to actually get back to levels of high performance and not get re-injured again. Um, so it really came out of a certain level of frustration, just going to physios or going to different health professionals and not feeling like I was finding the answers that I was looking for and basically having to take it into my own hands. Um, so after I did my undergrad, which was in um, sports performance or like exercise science, um, I then did a um, graduate degree at the University of Melbourne, um, doing a doctor of physiotherapy. And yeah, I've been working with high performance athletes and um, I guess performance oriented rehab um, ever since then. Yeah, awesome, man. So when... Because you're from Can Canada originally, is that right? Yeah, yeah. When did the move to Australia happen? Uh, so I did my my undergrad and then I was kind of, um, I floated around British Columbia for a year, just kind of figuring out what I wanted to actually be doing um, after my undergrad. Um, and I saw this program that was offered at the University of Melbourne and I thought it would be an awesome uh I guess, excuse to come out to Australia and um, just travel around while I was also studying. 
Um, and I ended up liking the country so much that I've just stuck around ever since. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, what about a little bit about like what you do now? Like your sporting wise, are you like following or have you gone down any sporting paths or look like it looks like what you do um, on your Instagram, you get into a fair bit of some crazy acrobatic type parkour type stuff so <laughs> yeah i've got a few uh i guess ongoing projects there um i got really big into olympic weightlifting um kind of throughout my my undergrad um and a little bit of track and field as well um and that has always been i guess a little bit in the background of my training so i really enjoy the like strength development side of things and the power development side of things uh, so that's always sprinkled in there just a little bit in my regular routine uh, but then on top of that i like a little bit of kind of the acrobatic and hand balance and like mobility training side of things as well um so it, actually it acts as kind of a, a nice counterbalance to all the strength work and all the Olympic weightlifting work, having that more, I guess, expressive side or more creative side with a bit of acrobatic training, a little bit of mobility training as well. Yeah. Awesome. You certainly expose yourself to some pretty vulnerable positions in that sort of stuff, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I figure like if I go through the, the process and get to the point where I feel really confident and comfortable in um, rehabbing my own injuries or even preventing injuries in my own practices. It definitely gives me a lot of insight for how to give that to other people in their own kind of high performance or, or sporting endeavors. Um, so I definitely push the boundaries a little bit for myself so that I can better understand where other people are coming from with their rehab as well. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I love that. I think it makes a big, it's a big part of the puzzle when someone's actually practicing what they preach. Yeah, it's a whole another thing to like really go through the experience yourself um, and then be able to take little nuggets or, or insight from your actual experience and share that with other people. Yeah, for sure. So obviously you're, you're very well versed in many different injuries. Today, we're going to talk a bit more or a bit more specifically around ACL uh, rehab and knee injuries. So I guess like obviously in, in dirt bike racing, off-road racing for the people, for the listeners, like it's a super common injury for people to do their knee um, in the past or like in general, it's very common for people as soon as they injure their knee, they think their only resort is to, to get surgery done um, to repair it. Lately, I guess the last few years, there's been a, a bit of a move towards non-surgical ACL repair. Um, obviously, you've had a lot of experience in that. So tell us how that's come to be a little bit more of a common practice over the last few years. Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll give a bit of background in terms of like why... I find ACL so interesting um, and so exciting to, to rehab. And then I'll get a little bit into, um, I guess, the, the overview in terms of non-surgical options versus surgical options as well. Um, I think ACLs in particular, there's this really strong divide between what good effective rehab actually looks like uh, versus what I guess the industry standard tends to be 
um, when most people walk into just a regular physio clinic and start rehabbing their ACL um, compared to what can actually be done um, around that injury. And the fact that there's such a like stark contrast between those two things. And then also the fact that with this type of injury, if you go down one path, your outcome will look very, very different compared to if you go down another path. So if you get suboptimal rehab, you might be looking at a knee that's really struggling to cope to actually get back to high levels of sports performance or a knee that's going to be constantly vulnerable, constantly a liability when you're actually getting back into your sport. Um, and it's always going to be in the back of your mind. It's probably going to get re-injured again in the future. And it's going to turn into this entire ordeal that it really doesn't have to be if you go through the right process and the right pathways. Um, and then on the other side, if you really go through the, the rehab process, kind of the, the optimal or the better way, um, you end up with ideally more strength, more range of motion, more capacity around your lower body than you actually had pre-injury. So if you use it as an op opportunity to actually improve on all these different qualities in terms of like performance metrics, so the amount of muscle mass and strength around your lower body, your ability to kind of coordinate lower body movement and absorb force, um, your overall mobility and kind of range of motion that you have available to access. If you're really going through the process and improving all these things, it should feel like you're a better athlete than you were pre-injury if you're, you're going through the right pathway. Um, so that was really kind of the thing that got me most excited about ACL rehab was the fact that so many people were getting less than optimal results um, and really a strong feeling that it didn't have to be that way um, and that there were really good options in terms of rehab pathways and return to performance pathways that people could go through to get back to more than 100% after their injury. Um, so yeah, that's what really kind of was most exciting and drew me to, to ACLs initially. Um, and then to kind of elaborate a little bit on um, like your reference to surgical versus non-surgical rehab as well. That's another thing that's really quite interesting because over say the, the last 30 years, 40 years, surgical um, treatment for ACL rupture has been the standard for the most part. Um, there was a like, few surgeons here and there that would advocate for like non-surgical uh, management for certain populations, but by and large, it was, if you do your ACL, you're going in for surgery and getting it reconstructed. But over, I guess the last decade or so, there have been these really um, interesting steps forward in the literature and in the research around um, ACL recovery and actual non-surgical pathways. Um, and it's really starting to, I guess, come out that there are a large percentage of people that can actually return to levels of high performance and perform just as well as people that get surgery um, if they're not getting surgery, but going through the right rehab pathways um, for their ACL. Yeah, awesome. So what, like... How does someone actually qualify? Because obviously it's not ideal for everyone. We're not saying that like 100% of people are going to be able to avoid surgery. Um, 
for some people it, it's it's it might be necessary yeah how do you like is there a process you take a client through to like to, to figure out to assess them and figure out if they qualify for a non-surgical approach yeah so generally training and rehab starts day one after the injury and then how the athlete kind of copes or responds to the rehab process um, will determine after roughly six to 12 weeks, whether they're going to be going down a surgical pathway or a non-surgical surgical pathway. Um, so there's, I guess, different things to look out for with the, uh, the knee and how it responds to certain types of movement or certain types of training um, that will definitely be kind of clear differentiators between whether this is a knee that is going to um, need surgical intervention to get back to high levels of performance or whether or not this is a knee that can kind of cope and um, actually get to a high level of performance without surgery. Um, I think the, the first thing to emphasize is that you've got to start doing rehab and training no matter which of these categories you fall into. Um, so if you do fall into the surgical um, category, you still wanna be training hard, rehabbing hard all the way up to surgery so that you're getting the best possible outcome after surgery. Uh, if you're not going through surgery, well, you wanna start training anyway because you're gonna be going through a long rehab process as well to get back to a high level of performance. Um, in terms of the things to look out for, so one of the, the biggest things can be what other structures have been injured in this um, kind of ACL trauma. So if it's a like pure ACL injury uh, with maybe a little bit of bone bruising on top of it um, and a little bit of swelling around the knee, um, generally these types of ACL injuries are going to be much easier to rehab non-surgically. If you have, say, ACL plus MCL plus meniscus, um, and then the joint has been, I guess, damaged to a certain extent as well, that's going to be a lot harder to cope with non-surgically. And oftentimes it's going to be beneficial to go in there and uh, fix some of the surrounding structures along with the ACL um, to get the knee back to kind of a stable foundation to start to build off of. Um, so the type of injury can be a kind of big clue and um, indicator in terms of which pathway. The other thing is the like functional state of the knee after that six to 12 week window of initial rehab. So if the knee is back to 100% um, kind of zero degree extension where they can contract the quad, they can lock that knee in and it's nice and stable. If the knee is not having a large number of incidents where it's actually buckling or giving way and it actually feels stable enough to walk on, to do some basic squatting and lunging patterns on, and the person is coping uh, pretty well in terms of the functional stability of the knee, that's usually a good indicator that non-surgical um, rehab is going to be the pathway that's going to be best suited for them. Um, if they, for whatever reason, are feeling like the knee is, even with some strength training and some initial early stage rehab, even with that, if the knee is still feeling like it's quite unstable or it's having these incidents where it buckles and gives way, um, that's going to be a, another marker, another sign that surgery is actually going to be the best option for that knee. Yeah. 
Yeah, cool. I think that's a super important thing for people to to know, man, is the whichever path you go down, like you you need to start acting on the training, like like you say, like the the day after the injury. Like it's so common I hear from people like, oh, I injured my knee 10 weeks ago and I'm yeah. just waiting for it to get better or I'm waiting for surgery. Um, yeah. People, I think people think that resting it completely is going to allow it to recover, but it's just, it's only going to prolong the process, right? Yeah, I would say like in terms of timelines and the overall time it takes to return to a high level of function or a high level of performance, that I guess pure rest idea where if something's injured, you just have to stay off it and you have to not use it. I would say that has maybe like a 25 to like 40% increase in the actual time it takes to get somebody back to 100%. Uh, the amount of atrophy and the amount of loss of function that you get if you just completely offload any joint or, or any set of muscles in the body is pretty substantial, especially if you do it for like six to eight weeks of just not using it. And that's a period of time where you could have been maintaining muscle mass. You could have been reducing swelling just by contracting the muscles around the joint. You could have been improving your range of motion and your overall function and setting yourself up for the next stages of rehab. Um, so yeah, I would say that's probably one of the biggest, um, like detriments or, um, biggest barriers to a fast recovery is that I guess idea or that culture of just rest it and kind of wait and see how, how, how it goes. Yeah, man, for sure. Like even going down the surgery path, if you are going to have surgery, at least if you spent that window of time, even just learning the exercises, so you, you know what some of them are. So as soon as you do have the surgery, then it's like, okay, I'm not completely starting from scratch. I've got a little bit of an idea of how these are meant to feel because I've been practicing them for like six weeks beforehand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just skip that kind of learning phase and be able to jump straight into it. It's a huge asset. Yeah. So what are some of the other benefits of going to, obviously, um, that's probably the biggest one is we're just losing that window of like, the, I guess, for want of a better term, like the setback of the surgery, like the surgery is creating a lot of trauma in itself, which is like oftentimes after the surgery, you're actually going to be like quite a bit worse off than you were when you walked in there because of the, the trauma that's gone in the surgery. So just to even get back to where you were before you went under the knife is going to be quite a period of time to get just to get to there, let alone to start getting stronger again. Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely in terms of like a, a return to performance, people shouldn't expect that a surgical pathway is actually going to be faster to get them to high levels of performance or back to their sport. Um, generally it's going to be roughly a year from surgery that they're actually getting back into really, really high level, uh, kind of pushing the threshold, um, unless they're a professional athlete and they have kind of time demands to push them into sport a little bit sooner. Yeah. Um, and then oftentimes 
we can see people getting back to high levels of performance non-surgically within the, the seven to, to 12 month period. Um, so oftentimes even faster um, than surgery. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something to consider. The surgical route does have kind of that reset almost back to the start after surgery. And then your actual kind of time to get back to sport starts after the surgery, as opposed to after the initial injury itself. Yeah, cool. And it, it's not like, not just talking about tears here, like it, it is actually possible for some people to completely rupture their ACL. Like it's, it's gone, there's no ACL and you can actually rehab and re-strengthen the knee with, without the ACL, all the muscles around the knee can, can do the job yeah. um, correctly. So obviously, again, that's not everyone, but it is possible, even if you have snapped your ACL fully, that you can return to, to sport without an ACL. Yeah, absolutely. And the literature is really interesting. The specific studies that have looked at return to performance and compared non-surgical versus surgical, they didn't specifically look at what the ACL was actually kind of doing in the non-surgical populations. So it's a little bit up in the air, whether or not there was kind of spontaneous reattachment of the ACL or whether or not these people were just coping extraordinarily well because they had the functional ability from their muscles around the knee. Uh, but there have been other studies where a certain percentage of the people that rupture their ACL will have kind of a spontaneous reattachment um, when they check in and do imaging eight to nine months down the road. Uh, so it is very possible that the ACL can spontaneously reattach uh, in a percentage of people. Um, and then even if it doesn't, um, we can still have that very high level of performance just by creating the stability around the knee through the, the more active structures um, and the musculature around that joint. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's pretty amazing that it can actually reattach. But yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it is. The, the body's an amazing thing. Um, so you kind of touched on it before, like let's talk about what you potentially feel like is missing in like your standard physio approach. Like I know I've spoken to you about it a couple of times, but I often have people, new clients start with me and they'll flag that they've had an ACL rehab two, three years ago. And I, I always ask them like, what did you do for the rehab? And nine times out of 10, it's, oh, I just did like six months of some body weight exercises some stuff with some bands and then got sent on my way. And that, that was it. Like that's as far as it goes. So tell us a little bit yeah, about what you feel like is missing in your standard physio approach. Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest thing is maybe a, I guess, mindset around how somebody progresses or travels through their rehab um, and really understanding how important this mindset is. Um, and this is the idea that rehab should be criteria-based and not time-based. So what this means is it really, really doesn't matter if you go through your surgery or have your injury and then kind of rest and don't do anything for five months 
and then think, okay, because it's been five months, I'm now clear to return to running and return to change of direction and kind of high speed impact type stuff. Um, this is not how proper ACL rehab should work. It really should not matter how long um, you have gone since the injury or um, since your surgery. If you're not checking off specific criteria in terms of the functional ability and performance around the knee and around the lower body in general. So what I'll do for all my ACLs, we have kind of a stage by stage rehab process where I have a checklist of different criteria that goes, okay, this is what you have to hit in terms of either range of motion or strength or general function um, to actually move into the next stage of rehab and the next level of kind of exercises and progressions. Um, if you move through this really quickly and you're going through all your training and you're progressing really well and checking off all these boxes, then great, you can probably move into the next stage a little bit sooner, a little bit more quickly. Um, if you're taking a longer period of time and the knee is really struggling to check off these boxes, that's fine, but we still have to be working at a certain level that's safe and optimal for the knee, regardless of how much time has actually passed since the injury or since the surgery. Yeah. Yeah, cool. When, like with some of your case studies with the, the non-surgical, what's that time frame like? Obviously, every every case is going to be a little bit different, but what are those some of those time frames? that you see when they, they can actually like start to, I guess, go from the, the basic like body weight type stuff to moving into actually adding some external load and, and progressing towards some plyometric type stuff. Yeah. So I would say the first two weeks are very much kind of a make or break for the first eight weeks. If you have a kind of very slow first two weeks and you're just sitting on your butt and you're not getting straight on top of it, your first eight weeks are going to be a much different look compared to if you go um, really kind of consistently for the first two weeks and you get into your proper rehab straight away. Um, so if somebody at two weeks time has full zero degree knee extension, they can contract their quad, they've eliminated most of the swelling around the knee, and they have kind of a basic um, range of functional ability. So they can squat to parallel or just slightly below parallel, they can stand on the single leg and balance, um, they can do some basic hand assisted lunging variations. If they can get that in the first two weeks, then it's not uncommon that people will get back to squatting body weight or more than body weight, being able to do pistol squats and being able to do some very light um, kind of dynamic rebounding off of double leg or single leg by that eight week mark um, as kind of a, a consistent standard. Um, some of my, my best guys have been back to kind of full Olympic lifting, um, full pistol squats um, and like really heavy um, barbell squatting um, within the first six to eight weeks. Um, and then they really set themselves up well so that they had the functional ability and the stability around the knee to actually start moving into some plyometric stuff and some intense single leg jumping stuff by the three to four um, month mark. Um, and these are guys where they kind of progress quickly through each stage, but 
we didn't progress too soon or to a level that was beyond how the knee was actually testing um, in the checklists that we were going through. And they just moved through each stage step-by-step step, very systematically. And it ended up in a very smooth and kind of fast rehab for them and ended up hitting kind of jumping PBs and squatting PBs at roughly the five month mark post-injury. Um, so the, the pathway to kind of high levels of uh, levels of performance or to being able to jump and land and kind of control high levels of force to the knee um, can be as short as five to six months. Um, but it still has to be kind of step-by-step step, making sure that you check off each box along the way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How, how important do you think it is to, to be using sort of some some heavier type loads to in the rehab process like on that there's probably a lot of people that will be listening to this that thinking squatting their body weight is like scary to them yeah like, yeah for sure for you for for people like us like it's it's common like it's just it's no no problem mm. um but for many people that in itself is just a journey to even get to that with a good knee so yeah yeah absolutely i think the more people use kind of an ACL injury as an opportunity to really learn about strength training um, in general and to, to a certain extent fall in love with, with strength training, the better their long-term function and the long-term health around that knee is, is going to be um, and the better they're going to feel just around their lower body overall. Um, so it is really an important thing because it offers kind of a intense enough stimulus uh, to get the knee really strong and really well protected by the musculature around that area without having to kind of push into really fast or dynamic stuff too early um, in the rehab process, because at certain stages, really doing kind of intense jumping and landing or intense sprinting and change of direction work, it's going to be much too high risk. Um, and much too difficult for the knee if it hasn't had that preparation with handling large quantities of load, but in kind of slower situations like a barbell squat or a barbell lunge uh, or a deadlift of some kind. Yeah. Yeah, it really is the gift that just keeps giving strength training, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely underrated in, uh, in a lot of people. You're right though, man. Like, it, I guess it just comes back to how, how important it is, like even for anyone listening to this that hasn't had a knee injury, like the, the sooner you can learn some of these movements and progress, like you don't have to be squatting double your body weight, but just being able to handle your own body weight on a bar is like a, a just a good entry level target to be working towards. Like yeah. the the sooner you start that journey, the like the better off things going to be. Like, even if you do happen to injure yourself down the line, which like can still happen, like, especially in dirt bikes, if you have a bad stack, like you can just do your knee no matter how well prepared you are. But if you do already know you've built that foundation with in your strength training and you know how to perform some of these movements, your progression post-injury is going to be so much better. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't really emphasize enough how important it is 
not only for injury prevention and rehabilitation, but also for the performance side of things. Um, and that doesn't only apply to sports that seem more traditionally strength-based. So anything that requires speed, anything that requires power, anything that requires um, having to like change direction or absorb forces quickly, that is always going to be um, beneficial um, to have an excess of strength in so that you can really... I guess, control those high velocity forces um, and be safe and also kind of excel at doing that. I think it was really something that kind of rang true to me uh, from personal experience. I remember it was my like first year of undergrad that I really started getting into some serious strength training stuff. And during my undergrad, I um, kind of took my, my squat. I was squatting maybe um, 0 0.8, 0 0.9 times, um, body weight. And then over like the, the winter off season, I went up to around 1.6, 1.7 times body weight, um, kind of in that winter. And the first time I got out onto the field and actually started doing some sprints, it felt like I was shooting myself out of a cannon compared to, um, how fast I was in the season beforehand. Um, and it just clicked inside my head that, okay, if I can put more force into the ground, I can actually propel my body more quickly, more effectively, and kind of perform at a higher level. Um, and this is something that applies to guys on the bike who have to absorb force in any kind of turn or any kind of landing. If you have the strength in your legs and it feels like you have this excess level of strength, everything becomes easier, everything becomes faster, um, and everything just feels so much better in comparison. Yeah, totally, man. It's the it's the mother quality of everything, right? Strength. Like yeah. when it goes up, everything else goes up with it in turn, without even having to try. Like, yeah, it's just it's automatically going to improve all those and endurance. Like, every, everyone always talks about muscular endurance in in off road racing, and like the easiest way to improve your endurance is to simply just get stronger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so. How about that, like plyometrics? Because again, that's something that, again, like when I talk to someone who has had an ACL and they've done a re gone through the rehab process, quite often there's just none, like it's not even on the on the program to do yeah. to do any plyometrics. And like you obviously have quite an extensive progression of of taking people through. Um, mm -hmm. How important is that to the to the rehab process? Yeah. So building kind of off the idea of strength training that we just talked about plyometrics are the way to start to understand how to apply your strength in specific situations or at specific angles um, or under specific times that are much more um, I guess specific to your actual sport um, and what things are going to look like on the field or on the bike um, when you're actually doing your sport. Um, so it's almost like this way to channel all the strength that you build up into power and speed and movement competency um, in your actual sport. And it's effectively the link between all the strength training and then high performance in your sport. Um, in terms of kind of the rehab pathway, it's honestly... 
I guess, a little bit scary, the idea of somebody going back to sport without going through a proper um, progression through plyometric training and relearning how to effectively absorb force and then put force back out at really high speeds and at certain joint angles. Um, It's really like almost relearning how to run and jump with your knee and getting the knee more and more capable through this very systematic progression line of different exercises. Um, The beauty of plyometrics is that if you know what you're doing and you know how to apply them, you can really create this logical progression of step-by-step where you're gradually introducing more and more force, more and more speed, and more and more kind of compromising angles or positions for the joints. Um, And you can do it in such a way where the body has enough time to adapt to each stage, and you can do it really safely and really effectively. On the other hand, if you're like jumping into sport and doing something kind of outside of your control where there's other people or you're not entirely sure what you're going to be doing um, or the conditions are like not really, really controlled and systematically progressed, then you've got a really high risk of re-injury. And really you won't develop the same level of movement competency or power and speed because you just don't have that clear progression and those foundations that you're building on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess again, for people that, that even aren't on the, on the rehab process, it's such an important part of the training, the plyometrics. Um, cause like you say, like for the, like the brain's just always trying to organize the body. Right. So when we're, when we are doing like a heavier, say a squat, it's, it's, we're producing a lot of force, but it's happening quite slow. But when you, when we go to do something like a plyometric, it's that's happening a lot quicker and we're having to produce and absorb those forces at a lot, in a lot faster contraction. Yeah. And not only like from the kind of muscle training and um, kind of motor learning side of things, but also from specific tendon and ligament conditioning. So it's actually been shown that kind of extended plyometric loading, um, in particular around the ACL, will increase the the cross-sectional area, so the thickness of the actual ligament um, over a course of three to four months. So what you're actually doing when you're doing your jump training and your change of direction training and your sprint training, you're recreating that structural integrity around that ligament and actually making it stronger and more resistant to those types of loads. Yeah, for sure. Like, like you said back at the start, man, like everyone's going to experience some level of atrophy. Like your, your muscle is going to waste um, when you have, even if you do have an injury and you get onto it straight away, like there's going to be some level of, of atrophy there, which is going to be even worse the longer you wait. Like you said, if you do wait like eight weeks or it's going to be even worse. So when like, it's actually a positive thing, we want to be like, putting on some muscle and to, to get the knee back to a level where it's going to be injury proof again, like we actually need to be encouraging hypertrophy and some, some muscle growth and, and the tendons and ligaments to actually get stronger. Yeah. Yeah. I always encourage people to eat a slight caloric surplus um, when they're going through the, the rehab process, especially like some of the more intense strength training blocks. 
Um, it's always easy to kind of lean out and um, like lower body weight a little bit after the entire rehab process. Uh, but if you're eating a little bit more, putting on a little bit more muscle mass and are really able to support recovery with those extra calories, um, it makes your like overall kind of improvement and uh, progression through the rehab so much quicker, so much easier um, overall. And in terms of like relative strength and performance, if that's somebody or if that's something that somebody is concerned about with putting on some muscle mass or some extra weight, um, you can always think, okay, if I am a set body weight and I'm really struggling to get above, say, a um, 120 kg squat and say I'm like 80 kg body weight, if I put on five kgs of muscle mass, but then add 20 kgs to my, my back squat, I'm still lifting more relative to my body weight, I'm still able to put more force into the ground um, or into the bike relative to my body weight. Um, and because of that, I have a higher level of control, a higher level of performance overall. Um, even though I've added a little bit of extra body weight, uh, I'm still able to actually put more force into the ground or into the bike relative to my body weight. Yeah, everything gets easier again. Yeah, exactly. I guess the the argument I always hear from people about that is that that muscle uses too much oxygen or uses more oxygen. So the the belief is if we've got too much muscle mass that it's we're going to gas out quicker because our our body's consuming more oxygen. But like you and I both know, you're not going to wake up tomorrow with five kilos of muscle mass just piled on like that. Like if it was yeah. that easy, like. And if you did, if you did wake up and you had five kilos more muscle mass, but you still had the same cardiovascular system, the same lung and heart capacity, then yeah, you'd struggle. But that muscle is going to take a long time to build and it's going to come on in very small amounts. Your whole body is going to adapt to that process at the same time. So yeah. it's, it's really, it's a flawed argument. I think when people say that more muscle is going to consume more oxygen. Yeah. I mean, look, there is a like point of diminishing returns, uh, but most people don't necessarily have to worry about crossing that threshold. If you're like 110 kgs and um, trying to like whip the bike around, then it's definitely going to take some, uh, some extra gas in terms of energy systems. Uh, but I think the, I guess, offset from everything getting easier and becoming a like lower um, relative level level of effort with the additional strength and muscle mass is really, I guess, more than enough to, to offset any extra kind of energy system demands as a result of that muscle. Um, so say you're like lifting a 10 kg dumbbell and you're trying to do it for like 200 reps as fast as you can. Um, say you have a certain level of muscle mass and you don't need quite as much energy for that muscle mass, but the 10 kgs feels relatively heavy while you're doing it. It's going to take a decent amount of time to actually get through those 200 reps. But if you have a larger quantity of muscle mass and that 10 kgs feels like nothing in your hands, 
You're going to be able to move through and get that work done in a much faster amount of time and with much less overall energy system demand uh, from your body because it's so much relatively easier and because you have the muscle mass and the strength to make it feel relatively easier. Um, so really the relative ease of everything is one of the things that's going to be the biggest payouts from an increase in muscle mass and should definitely offset any extra energy that's required from that muscle. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah, you're right. There's definitely a diminishing returns. And, but like you say, like the average guy that rides a dirt bike is nowhere near that. Like I would, I would say that most guys are like they're under their optimal body weight by like 10% um, because most guys just aren't eating enough food and they're not also not training um, strength and, and their gym training is inadequate. I would say a lot of the time. So when you combine that with not enough calories, then your body's not going to be anywhere near its optimal, it's optimal amount of muscle mass. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to get back to the, like the standard approach to the rehab do you think that kind of stems from like you say like you've exposed your body to a lot of strength training a lot of crazy positions that you get into an acrobatic stuff so you're actually well aware of what the human body is capable of um do you think because some some people are actually like almost like a little bit afraid of, of what they can actually get out of someone and how can sort of move that needle in the rehab process that that sort of becomes an, an inadequate program yeah i think i guess part of it is definitely just the culture of like education around physiotherapy there isn't a like really strong necessary foundation in strength and conditioning or in performance training that we get taught in physiotherapy programs. Um, so I had my background in exercise science, but that was not a part of my actual physiotherapy degree. Um, so it's really just fortunate that I had that because that gave a lot of context in terms of bridging the gap between actual rehab and then high performance in the end. Um, and so just because a lot of physios are not really um, I guess taught this in, in school. And because unless you have the personal experience of training for high levels of performance, it's just really hard for most people without that background to really understand what has to go into it and what it has to look like to get somebody ready for the demands of high performance sport. Um, and to be able to bridge that gap between just the early stages of rehab and where somebody actually wants to go. Yeah. Yeah. I often, that's, I'll often, I'll have people will often ask me like whether the, the physio they're seeing is any good. And I'll often tell them that's how you can tell is if they've got a gym, if they take you out of their consult room and take you into a gym and like get you under a barbell, then it's, they're probably going to do a pretty good job. Um, yeah. If the whole process just involves therabands, then it's, probably not going to be adequate. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also, I guess the idea that a lot of more traditional or kind of old school physiotherapy is 
largely based around the alleviation of pain around certain areas. Um, and that's really the big outcome measure is, is this person no longer in pain around this area? Whereas with ACLs, it's entirely different. The outcome measures are all based on performance. So can the knee withstand certain levels of force? Can it put out certain levels of force? Can it move through certain ranges of motion? Um, can it tolerate certain positions or changes of direction? All of these things are performance oriented outcome measures, um, which are like one really hard to measure if you don't have like a gym set up um, and the proper, um, I guess, area for it. Um, and two, not something that really fits in the conventional idea of, okay, just get this person out of pain um, and then they're good to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a good insight, man. Um, before we wrap up, like you, you kind of touched on it earlier about the, the mobility aspect. Um, that is something that I love about how you do things. Like we have spoken a lot about the strength training and, and the plyometric stuff, but also how you do incorporate the full range of motion, um, more sort of mobility type training. Like mm -hmm. it is possible. And I've been there before myself, like to be really strong at deadlifting and really strong at squatting to 90, but can't do something like a hero or even like the shrimp squat, like a kind of like a pistol squat variation. Like mm. we, we don't just want to be getting strong. We want to be like able to produce force in the knee, like even at our own body weight, but through the full range, like at deep knee flexion and some of those more compromising positions. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely something that's overlooked even in, I guess, people that have a bit of a strength and conditioning background or um, train for more high performance goals, this, I guess, whole range of different benefits that really developing end ranges has for people with ACL injuries who are wanting to return to high levels of sports. Um, there's a few different reasons why having full range of motion and then having strength and control through that full range of motion is super important. Um, one of the, the first ones is the more degrees of freedom and the more um, accessible ranges you have, say through your hip, through your knee, through your ankle and foot, the more options you have to actually offload or move in a certain way if you're getting yourself stuck in kind of a, a tricky position or a position where the, the knee might be in danger um, due to whatever factor in your sport. So if you say don't have a certain level of hip range of motion or a certain level of ankle range of motion and you plant and you're kind of stuck in that position, if you can't get that range out of the hip, if you can't get that range out of the ankle, it's going to necessarily come from the knee because it can't come from anywhere else. Um, and that's effectively how a lot of ACL injuries happen when people don't have the available control or range through other joints, then the knee has to pick up the slack. Um, and there's only so much slack that it can safely pick up. Um, so the more people develop their hip range of motion and their ankle range of motion and the ability to use all of those joints as kind of a controlled unit and system, um, the better their knee is going to perform and the better 
they're going to perform in their sport overall. So that's really one of the big things is it allows the knee to not necessarily take up too much slack and to actually be able to control forces through the hip and through the ankle, through their full range of motion, um, gives you a whole bunch of other options to get yourself out of kind of tricky situations. Um, the other thing is if you don't have strength or if you don't have control or the ability to access a certain range, you have absolutely zero ability to actually build strength through that range. Uh, which is a really, really important theme and kind of overall idea for ACL rehab. If you are really strong through say zero to 90, uh, that's great. But if you ever put yourself in a position where you're going past zero to 90, then all that strength training is not really worth much because you've never actually accessed that range. And if you haven't accessed that range, chances are you're very, very weak through that range as well. Um, and if you're weak there, then you're vulnerable there. And it's going to be a much higher likelihood of, of injury if you're accessing those ranges unprepared. So the more range you have and the more range you have control through, the more strength you'll actually have through those ranges, or at least the more ability to build strength you'll actually have. Um, and that kind of sets you up so that there's no kind of no-go zones or no areas around your joint that you're having to constantly avoid or not go into because you'll feel that there's strength through every possible available range and you're effectively kind of in control or able to be familiar with all these different ranges around the knee. Yeah, for sure. And that, that the end result of that, I think is just a lot more confident athlete as well. Like if you, if you're worried about like going to full knee flexion and or whatever the position may be, then that's always going to be a thing that's in the back of your mind, right? Like it's, yeah. shit, I can't do that or I might tweak something or so when you do train those, all those other and, and build the capacity in those other ranges of motion, then you just, you become a lot more confident in your body. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think everybody probably intuitively understands that if you're riding scared or you're playing scared, um, or if you're riding hesitant and playing hesitant, it's one, not going to be very good for high levels of performance. And two, it's potentially dangerous because you're going to tighten up when you shouldn't tighten up, or you're not going to commit to things that you should be committing to. Um, and it just, it affects everything. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Um, I think we've nearly covered it all. Yeah. For the first one, at least. <laughs> That's one. I think, um, It'd be cool. There's definitely lots of other rabbit holes we could go down, but even maybe uh, a Q and A if the listeners have some questions or something that they potentially want to send in, like that'd be cool to do as well. Yeah, that'd be awesome. There's definitely a lot. We could dive a lot deeper down all of those things we've discussed today. Um, but that, I think that paints a really good, a good picture of, of what we're about, what you're about, especially. So. Yeah. Killer. Uh, tell everyone. Cause that's what like since uh probably six weeks ago now that you and i are offering that um rehab to performance program so it's the people can if they are actually have experienced an injury they can they can train with you um from day one and and you take them through that process um and get them to a level where they can 
then sort of cross over into a performance program with myself. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the entire idea of it. Just that kind of smooth transition from the initial stages of rehab, setting a good foundation and then, yeah, being able to send people um, to like work with you directly afterwards um, and carry on with their transition from rehab into performance. Um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a good system for sure. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, how can people get a hold of or get in touch with you or follow you um, to learn more about your work? Um, so main thing will be Instagram at the moment for the ACL physio is the handle. So at the ACL physio, um, you can also reach out to me, um, just Chris at cornerstonenewcastle.com as an email, um, or send me a direct message over Insta. Um, there's a whole link tree and online bookings. So feel free to have a look and, uh, get in contact with me. Awesome, man. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a blast. Cool. See ya. Cheers.